2: Uh, hey, guys, this week's episode is a little bit different. It's a live show that I did with Jane Costen, and Dave Roberts in Seattle. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it sounds a little different, like we're in a big auditorium. Uh, but I think the energy of the live crowd is really cool and interesting. So thanks, especially to everybody who came out to see us live. And thanks to all of you for listening. Hello! Welcome to a special live episode of The Weeds from Seattle Town Hall. It's for the benefit of people listening later. You guys know you're here. Um, <laughs> I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Jane Coaston. as usual. Uh, Daryl Lind is uh, somewhere on the border or something like that. But Seattle's own David Roberts has joined us. He's a very frequent... Uh, Request we get to have him on the show talk about climate change. I am uh, much too lazy to organize the logistics of a remote hookup But as long as we're here, we are so pleased to have him with us Please, hey, up. And uh, I've, I've always wanted to go to Seattle. My roommate in college was from Seattle. I, I love, uh, like, cloudy weather, which really was sunny today, so I was disappointed. <laughs> uh, but, it's, but it's been really nice. Um, <clears throat> but to be serious, uh, it was a good moment. We, we had this big climate change forum earlier this week. Candidates sort of all got their homework done before that, released their climate change plans. Uh, the plans are long. It's a lot to digest, uh, but, but like, what, what can you tell us? Like, What are the sort of main highlights uh, of, of the plans that we see in the field here?
3: Sure. Well, there are a lot of them and they are long. There, there were, there, <laughs> there were, were many. There I were, mean, we can multitude. skip the, the, the dumb candidates, you know, yeah. if you want, just, <laughs> so,
2: just
3: stick to the good ones. No names, no names. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, there's a few things you could say about all, all, all the plans, I think, as a group. Uh, one is they are all Uh, wildly more ambitious than any plan that was on the table in the last election, or even six months ago. So uh, there's been just a really... uh, The activist quest to drive climate change into the center of the democratic agenda and to raise ambition on climate among the candidates has just been a wild, unqualified success. Uh, So that's... That's the main thing. So for instance, uh, the IPCC, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN uh, IPCC, says that if we want to uh, limit global average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees or less, which is the sort of threshold they have as sort of the level of safe warming, the world as a whole needs to completely go net zero emissions by 2050 and they need to get and the world needs to get halfway there by 2030 this is the sort of we have 12 years to save the world thing that you've probably heard f- flying around that's the origin of that thing is the ipcc says we got to be halfway there by 2030 or we have no chance of getting all the way there so that's what it means is we have to be halfway decarbonized by 2030. There's no big tipping point there. That's just sort of like a mile marker that they uh, put there. So uh, my point is that all the plans now, all the candidates' plans target uh, net zero U.S. emissions by 2050, which is just in and of itself wildly ambitious, like an incredibly, incredibly ambitious goal. So they all, all share that. So in a sort of global sense, they're all Crazy ambitious. So then, how um, are they different? <laughs> and and some of them are, I think that if you had to describe the difference between them, some of them take that twenty fifty goal and what it implies and what it requires more seriously than others. So uh, all that's by way of background. Um, you know, as sort of as one would expect, the biggest, most expensive <laughs> plan uh, uh, was released by Bernie Sanders. By Bernie Sanders last week, he is going to spend more than three times the amount of money that the next plan is going to is going to spend, and his 16 trillion dollars, you know, like Beto has five trillion, his whole plan, uh, Biden's is five trillion, I think, uh, Warren's is three trillion, but all of those are a mix of public money you know, the $1.7 trillion in public money, which is going to stimulate uh, private investment. So that's, so then the total is $5 trillion. For Bernie, it's all public. None of this, none of this public <laughs> private nonsense, none of this private capital nonsense. It's 100%. It's a good socialism, right? Yes, it is the, it is the, the socialist plan. Uh, and it has a couple of uh, uh, provisions in it that none of the other plans Have, for instance, this sort of scheme to nationalize uh, energy, electricity production, a couple of elements like that. Uh, Warren's is, I guess, the next most ambitious. Somewhat less money focuses on a couple of different things, and then the sort of the other, the other, um, and sort of the the surprising number three. I guess maybe this is the only sort of surprising thing is Booker, Cory Booker. has, has probably the third most ambitious plan. And if you watch the Climate Forum, all seven hours, I assume we all did, uh, <laughs> the, the seventh hour of that was Cory Booker and I had been watching all day and was ready to jump out a window and was totally ready to tune out. And he just came out rip-roaring and was like, great, better than I've ever seen Booker before. So he's sort of a surprising, surprisingly strong in this. And then sort of like the other candidates, have chosen to focus their plans on different things, kind of trying to tell stories about their campaign. So, Buttigieg is focusing on agriculture and small towns. Because he's a small town candidate. Yes, Mm -hmm. and and so Harris, the ex-prosecutor, is really featuring um, lawsuits against fossil fuel companies. That's sort of like her headline thing. She's got experience in that. Um, Mm -hmm. Booker and Castro have a really intense focus on environmental justice. That's kind of their headline thing. But really they're all, in terms of the main, uh, most of the main provisions, they're all really quite quite similar and all well out past the horizon of (laughs) what seems uh, possible.
4: So how much of these plans is an effort to get out in front of one another? And how much of this plans is reflective of what climate scientists and climate activists are saying, this is what should actually happen?
3: Well, the problem is that what scientists are saying should ab- absolutely uh, should happen is so like sci-fi beyond what what politics is capable of that there's sort of like no there's no outdoing the scientists on the, uh, on, on this. I mean, I mean, I guess uh, B- Bernie, Bernie, and and Warren and uh, Inslee, you know, uh, <laughs> we're all <laughs> we're all uh, targeting. 2045 for total net zero decarbonization of the U.S. And that's kind of because the IPCC also says that the U.S. needs to decarbonize faster than developing countries. Um, but, but so they are meeting what the scientists say and they are also, I think, trying to keep this extremely vigorous new leftist kind of uh, climate insurgency off there off their tails, <laughs> so but that's, that's what, mainly what I think they're trying but to do.
2: You know, what, what struck me about uh, the Sanders plan, or I, I shouldn't even say the Sanders plan, but in some sense the coverage of it, because I feel like he really wanted to be covered as this is the most ambitious plan, and he has succeeded in that, right? You, you described it that way. I think uh, Umer's article for Vox described it that way. But there's actually a number of sort of elements in that plan where, you know, he comes out against any kind of carbon capture. He comes out for phasing out nuclear power, right? And, and those things, um, they make it like a more left-wing plan. But it's not necessarily more, it strikes me in a certain sense, it's like not really more ambitious. In particular, because when you think about, like, what can the president do? right? Like, the president can't control what's going to happen in the 2040s. Uh, the president can't, like, you know, cast a spell and force Congress to appropriate $16 trillion. Uh, but the president... That, that's
4: just a lack of effort.
2: <laughs> yeah, if you, if you really want it. Um, but, but like, the president does appoint people to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, right? So it's like, if you want to discourage the use of nuclear power in the United States, you can, you can do that as president, right? And, and that strikes me as an area where, you know, being the kind of like leftiest candidate is not necessarily the same. I, I think particularly on, on the carbon capture where I don't even understand what the like objection to that is other than it's, yeah. like, it's like not as hardcore. Yeah,
3: yeah. The, the, the way I put it, and I've said this to you before, the way I put it is sort of Inslee's plan was, to me, uh, the gold standard. He had more than 200 pages of, of plan by the end of it all. I think I'm one of, like, maybe half a dozen readers of that. It's really great.
2: You really uh, you want to measure candidates by just kind of, like, weighing. Yes, the tonnage,
3: tonnage yeah. of plan. In that case, Inslee wins by tonnage. Uh, but, but the way I put it is, Inslee is sort of... Inslee's plan is what it looks like if you take experienced climate wonks... Who have been working on climate policy and trying to pull the levers of state policy, you know, working on this stuff at the state level, set them loose, like tell them to go go to the races. Like that's what Inslee's plan looks like is if you get the wonks. Uh, wonks unchained, right so they take like all the mechanisms that they know work, all the policies that are working at the state level, just blow them up, all the agencies like so many agencies listed in this plan, so many acronyms, really it's a wonk fest and and the and the Sanders plan is sort of if you took um, you know just sort of like rabid socialists <laughs> and, and set them loose uh, that's what a climate plan would look like. So it's, you're right, I think in a sense it's, it's as much about, like all, like all Bernie's plans, it's as much about reshaping society, fundamentally reshaping society along socialist lines as it is specifically about climate. Whereas Inslee is sort of like more targeted at, at climate. And so I think that's where like the nuclear stuff comes in and, and the CCS stuff comes in. Like Bernie, wa- the, le- the lefties want their bright, all-renewable future, and Bernie wants to, to do what the lefties want, and so that's what ended up in the plan. How much that... I think the president actually doesn't have a ton. I mean, there's, there's things the president can do to affect nuclear power, but most of the action on the nuclear power that matters, i.e. the plants that are now up and running, the main issue with nuclear power... There are three different issues if you read my recent post on this but the main issue about <laughs> nuclear power is the plants that we already have built that are running that are providing 20 percent of the nation's electricity uh over 50 percent of its carbon-free electricity so half of all carbon-free electricity we have in the country now is from nuclear and these plants are are, are getting their asses kicked on in, in wholesale markets they can't compete very well because they don't get any credit or money for being carbon free and they're big and slow and they're just getting outcompeted competed by natural gas and renewables so the big question is what do we do with these plants do we let them close down because they can't compete or when their licenses expire or do we do everything we can to run them as long as possible to give us more runway as we stand up renewables that's sort of the tangible nuclear policy question and mostly that's going to be decided at the state level. It's mostly states like New York and Connecticut and New Jersey that are figuring out ways of keeping their nuke plants open. So the nuclear issue gets a ton of heat. It's a very, it's become a culture war issue. It's become very sort of symbolic of a lot of different things like Yang. (laughs) Andrew Yang is very, very big into nuclear. Booker's very, very big into it as a sort of sign of like tech optimism
2: well, but also, I mean, it's, it's 20% of the electricity. <laughs> yes. the and, I mean, it's, it's not, and it's real. It's not yeah, it's just really, symbolic.
3: It's a real issue. I'm just saying that, like, the amount that the president is going to have materially to do about nuclear energy right, is is less than you would think from the from the amount of airtime this <laughs> argument gets.
2: No, that's fair, <laughs> that's fair enough. I, 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 another thing that, you know, you've written about and that I, I often, you know, wonder reading these plans is, like, what is the match between the targets and the policies? Because this is part of like a, an inversion of how plans are structured, right? It, if you go back to like the 08 cycle, people would say, okay, well, my plan, like Chris Dodd's plan was a carbon tax and it was of such and such amount. And then, you know, Obama's plan was of a cap and trade. and It was something or other. And one thing that's changed is just like the thinking about pricing. But one thing that changes when you make that change is you switch from talking about Instruments, and we then model what their effect is, to now we're talking about targets, and then there's a question of, like, do your policies deliver on that? Because, like, you can say, okay, well, my plan is we're going to have, you know, carbon-free electricity by 2030. But, like, how do you, yeah. how do, you do that, right? Yeah, like, yeah. it's not... It's things... Like specific tangible things need
3: to change. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of specific tangible things, but if you want to ensure that you hit the target, this was a huge, a huge issue in climate policy back in the in the early 2000s when the original climate when the original carbon tax versus cap and trade debates of 2006 were were, classic. Un, were unfolding. Classic, yeah. classic stuff, uh, and, and, the, and the sort of and the rap against uh, a C, uh, carbon tax was you don't know how much it's going to reduce emissions, right? Like you can sort of guess, you can model, but you just don't know. Whereas if you set a cap, you know, X amount of emissions, then, then you've at least on paper insured your target, right? You're like right. we're going to set this cap. So, so in that sense, Beto O'Rourke, who for reasons I don't totally understand, has, has come out now for cap and trade, the only, the only candidate who's like championing cap and trade. So in a sense, you could look at his plan and say he's the only one that's going to guarantee the target he set, right, because it's sort of written into the policy. But what we discovered after 2008 is, like, you can set targets all day long, but ultimately political will is political will. And even with the target, sort of titular target in, in writing, you're still going to get loopholes and, and, you know, exemptions. And it's going to get weakened unless there is the political will to do what's needed to do to hit the target. You know what I mean? So, like, you can't create political will with your plan. You're just sort of... A, in other words, we have no idea whether any of these targets are going to be hit. We won't know until political will manifests or doesn't in 2030 or, or, or whatever. So, you, but just I mean, can't, you can't do that with, with, with a policy plan. Basically. But, I mean,
2: it's a question in part of, like, do the candidates themselves even have... That You know, because so, so certain, certain candidates have plans who, if you understand what they mean, the implication is we're going to stop selling internal combustion engine cars, like, really soon, right? Not, like, in the distant future, like, in the lifetime of the next presidency. But I don't see candidates, like, saying that directly right like you can say at a rally right you'd be like we're gonna get affordable childcare for everyone and then you can be like i'm gonna set a target of blah 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 right or you could come and say like i'm gonna make gas-powered cars illegal but like i don't i I don't hear that right like it's not just that like i don't see the political will like i don't see the people behind these proposals actually standing by them and i sometimes wonder if politicians like have even read some of the documents that come out under their name. I think
4: that that's an important thing because I think that we've been talking a lot about political will. And I think that there also is a sense of it's like people being like, yeah, I'm absolutely for this basic concept. And then you get kind of to the like the nuts and bolts of the basic concept and people are like, but I don't, I like
3: cars. You've just described, you've just described literally all of climate policy. Really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, it, it, I mean, it, it's absolutely true. I mean, I will say there are some plans that have an interim 2030 target, which at least gives a little bit more accountability, like Bernie's plan, uh, Warren's plan, Inslee's plan, they all had these sort of interim 2030 targets where they want uh, 100% carbon-free electricity by then, all new buildings to be carbon-free by then, and all new cars to be carbon-free by then. So Warren wouldn't make internal combustion engine uh, uh, vehicles illegal. She would just stand up the electric vehicle industry, increase standards on the ICE vehicle industry until they sort of adjusted themselves. <laughs> Bernie's plan says he will have a carbon neutral transportation sector by 2030, which, if you read it, literally means he is not only going to make all new cars electric, he's going to somehow get the tens of millions of, of internal combustion engine vehicles that are now on the road, off the road, that, like, if you spelled out what would be involved in that, <laughs> you would really get a revolution. But, uh, but, but in a sense, like, <laughs> in a sense, like, n- none of these people, like, this is also abstract, uh, uh, you know, like, what's the point of What's the point of giving people something to hate about your own plan? Like, you know what I mean? Like, why not try well, to sell it? Th-
2: th- this is, yeah. So this is, you know, what we should talk about, right? Because it's like, these are these plans. And then the real world is if Democrats in November, if they win the Senate race in Arizona and they win the Senate race in Colorado and Doug Jones gets reelected in Alabama.
4: It could happen. Then, it, Joe, then Roy
2: Moore might win that primary, <laughs> but then it could absolutely happen. But I mean, but then, but then Joe Manchin is the median senator, and I'm pretty sure he's not going to um, ban internal combustion engine cars or or ban fracking or any of these other of these other things. So you know, I, I mean, I think a question is like, what what are the actual levers that are that are at work in the government? Because you don't, you don't just be like, well, my plan can't pass, I'm doing nothing.
3: Right, well, I mean, just to emphasize your first point, and this is what I would like to hear, honestly, candidates and uh, activists talk more about is, if you roll, you know, uh, an inside stra- if you pull an inside straight and you get the House and you get the Senate and you get the presidency, which already, is unlikely less less than 50 50 just those things and then by some miracle you get rid of the filibuster uh you know for i guess for those who don't know what the filibuster is it's 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 the reason you need 60 votes to pass anything in the Senate. It's yeah, we're skipping
2: past that. We're getting fixed. We're, we're skipping 50
3: past votes. that. Point is you need 60 votes, and which means you need at least eight, even if you have a even if you have a majority of Dems, means you need eight or nine Republican votes, and you're just no. flatly not going to get those for anything. So nothing will pass if the filibuster is in place. So if you get all both houses, the presidency, and you get rid of the filibuster, then you are in a position where you can get whatever Joe Manchin will sign. <laughs> then, then if you reach that exalted state, then you're negotiating with Joe Manchin. So what I want to know is this, like the, the Bernie revolution or the grassroots climate movement or whatever, like that's when that's going to matter. Like if we get to that point, it will only be massive, massive, massive public pressure and mobilization that's going to move any of these edge senators. And, and, the, and they are starting... They are starting in a place that is well more conservative than the most conservative of the plans that have been (laughs) tossed about so far. So I don't really, there's a lot of hand-waving about (laughs) what's gonna happen then. There's some sort of revolution, but yeah, but I would like people to know that that's coming, to be planning for it, and most importantly, to your final question, um, most plans include tons and tons of stuff that you can do with the executive branch. Like, I mean, there's a whole sort of parallel universe plan (laughs) where you don't have Congress and all you can do is more executive action and so some of the candidates have thought through that more than others but like...
2: And so this is like there's an EPA which regulates things the federal government owns all this land
3: Yeah, public lands uh, public lands, government procurement is is a huge, huge thing. Billions and billions of dollars you can throw around that way. I mean there's lots you can do but you're not going to do you know, you're not going to get on track f- to net zero by 2050 with executive actions. And, and, and really, like, being restricted to executive actions is just statistically the most likely outcome. So I would like to hear more from the candidates about exactly what they're going to do. But uh, for obvious reasons, none of them particularly want to focus on that or talk about that.
4: I think that there's something I want to get to is how much of the candidates been talking about the things that they can't do. Because I think that that's something where, I think that I predominantly cover conservatism, which means that I have a unnecessarily jaundiced view of all of this. (laughs) I am broken inside, (laughs) life is pain. (laughs) But I I would be curious to degree, because I think that there's been, uh, the New York Times had an interesting layout talking about how each of the candidates who are competing in the debates in October would view executive power. And there's very much of a sense of like, you know, executive power is bad, except well, it's, on
2: it's bad when Trump's president. <laughs> but it becomes good.
3: If Remember you're when Obama was president? It was it was like uh, communist czars that were trampling on the you're Constitution. Right.
4: But but then we were freed from because, that.
3: Yes. Then 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 Jesus put Trump in, and, and executive action became awesome. Yeah, uh, good times. No, they don't talk about Just it. I'm sure they think a lot and about it. The algae <laughs> I'm sure they think a lot about it, but no, obviously they don't want to go. Uh, they don't want to go talking about it. I mean, and this is like, this is like. Well, I'll, I'll just tell the story of, of 2007 and 2008 briefly. Uh, remember time it was. <laughs> remember back I when I was a junior in college. <laughs> Remember back when Obama got elected and and Democrats took the House and Democrats took the Senate and Obama was appointing appointing all these like John Chu, like a nuclear physicist at DOE, and like Pelosi and Henry Waxman were in charge in the House and like all the pieces were in place. Van Jones. remember? Van Van Jones was the green czar. Like everything was in place and everybody was full of this head esteem and everybody had so much hope and everything went right her according to plan, more or less, right up until the Senate, filibuster, and then it all died. And I looking back over it afterwards, I didn't hear anybody talking about that it, it, in the run-up to it. like w- people were just living in denial about it, and then it slammed the door shut on literally everything. So I, do, I just don't see why that's not going to happen. Again, that's what I want to hear them talking about.
0: Thinking
2: about 2008, 2009 also reminds me of the fundamental thing that these plans and these forums don't address, which is that, you know, politicians set priority right? And these are often fateful choices, right? I mean, we have saw a lot of reporting that President Trump was not enthusiastic about doing uh, Affordable Care Act repeal as his first act, that he'd wanted to just like do a big tax cut, and make everyone happy. But Paul Ryan talked him into doing the healthcare thing first. I-, I remember in the 2008 primary, I mean, I remember like being at a table with Barack Obama and him saying, I think it's more important to act on climate and energy uh, but the the maw of health policy, <laughs> like, it, it sucked him in. Uh, I, and, then, you know, it's similarly, uh, the technical explanation is, like, that's what congressional Democrats wanted to do. And my sense of watching this primary unfold is that most of the Democrats in the field, like, what they actually want to do is their health care plan, right? And one of the things that made, I thought, Inslee's candidacy distinct was not like the content of his plan, but the sense he conveyed that like, he wanted to make climate change his thing. And then his candidacy got a lot of plaudits once he dropped out, but like it didn't, (laughs) no, but like it didn't catch fire because rank and file Democrats, like they didn't want the candidate who was gonna prioritize climate change. And I feel like that's like, a, a big problem.
3: Yes. There are lamentably few single-issue climate voters. <laughs> uh, and not enough to carry a presidential campaign over the top in a primary. I, mean, and I oh, think over the top, but like to, to 4%, 2%, 2%. Not quite to 2%. But although Tom Steyer showed that if you have a priority on climate and a kajillion dollars, you can...
4: I think that plan's not really going to work for other people.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's limited Does application. Does he even have like a, like a climate change PDF or anything? Oh yeah, he came like out with this plan recently and it's yeah. big and expensive and, and ambitious like, like all the others, like everybody else. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I, and I think it's... Warren, in a sense, is, is I think admirable in this respect. Like Bernie bugs me in this respect in that he's, a, he's got a maximalist climate plan... And then he's also got a maximalist health care plan. And he's also got a maximalist debt forgiveness plan and a maximalist college debt forgiveness, but free college plan. And I don't even know all the other maximalist plans he has, like $16 trillion just for the climate part, but then the Medicare part and the debt part and like, you know, pretty senior, talking about real money here. Well, they're, they're up into like
2: Medicare's thirty-two trillion. Yeah, um, the so, college is cheap; it's like so, two point two trillion. So,
3: but the effect is the effect Not- is saying, yes, I'm going to do everything that everybody wants. Which, it, it, but but the consequence is you don't know what he really wants to do because no way in hell is he doing all those things. So, like, what are you going to lay down, sweat and tears for once you get in, in in office? And and so Warren, I think, is admirable in that she says. I think we have to do corruption first. She's not BSing climate people that she's gonna do climate first. She's like, I don't think we can do anything else until we do corruption, until we do voting reform and money in politics reform, and then I'll get to climate, right? So, so I mean, I don't think climate will be first on the agenda, honestly, for, for, for any candidate. Uh, my hope is that it will be, uh, my hope is that one of the things the candidates will have learned from the Obama experience is Obama thought he had reasonable interlocutors that he could negotiate with and that he could do things in a sensible sequence and that he could work and find you know, common ground and it just turned out to be a giant waste of time to absolutely know Point so I hope that the next. Lindsey Graham. I hope that the next administration comes in and just says, we are going to light all the fires at once. Like, we're going to go executive action, hardcore, EPA, you know, we're going to start stumping for bills, we're going to start barnstorming America, like all at once, because you really don't know. It's circumstances that are going to shape what's possible and what happens first, not really like what they tell us now.
4: I think Booker's plan, especially the concept of climate justice as a concept is interesting because I think that one, one thing that when I talk to people outside of the world in which we exist is the idea that we're like, okay, climate's important, but then there's also these other issues. But I think that when we're talking about immigration, we're talking about climate refugees. And we're talking about, you know, um, my spouse is from New Zealand, where in New Zealand, they're starting to accept a number of climate refugees from islands like Tuvalu, and Micronesia, and other areas that are starting, where flooding is a daily concern, we're starting to see that somewhat here. And so I'd be interested to see how candidates can talk about climate in context, because I think there very much is a sense in which a maximalist climate plan can make sense if you recognize that climate and environmental justice more broadly, and immigration, and all of these issues are interconnected. However, I'm not in charge of anything, and I can't convince anyone of anything. So, I think that, but it is interesting to see how there's been this kind of, this separation of climate as being a very, I mean, you, know, you see this a little bit with how there's an upcoming LGBT forum, as if gay people just show up one day like, today is gay day. Let's we'll talk Tomorrow. gay stuff not so gay. But like, I think that that's an interesting way to think about these issues, to think about them in context with talking about criminal justice reform and thinking about how climate issues impact that as well. Uh,
3: yeah, that is a, a super excellent point. And I think it's actually l- happening less now than it used to. And I think climate advocates and activists are much smarter about that than they used to be. So, I mean, some of that is forced upon us just by kind of the structure of things, you know, like they're supposed to come out with focus plans about this or that, there's going to be a debate about this or that, they're kind of, but the, but the Green New Deal, the whole point of the Green New Deal, the whole animating spirit of the Green New Deal is exactly that, is the idea that if we're going to do what we have to do on climate, it's going to involve a, a, like a massive convulsive sort of reformation of our basic institutions, and our, and our economy, and the way we act, and the way we do things, it's not, it's not a narrow policy lane, it's everything. So, like, some of the candidates are really good on that. Like, Booker, like I said, came out at the forum, and the very first thing he said was, I'm not going to do a climate item on my agenda. I look at every, I'm going to look at everything I do in office through this lens, like, like climate is jobs. You know, so like, so for instance, the Green New Deal, the whole point of the Green New Deal is we're going to create all these massive new industries, we're going to destroy or shrink a lot of incumbent existing industries, that's just how it has to happen, and the American people are not going to let us do that with the current crappy Healthcare system where they where they could be, you know, sick on the street if they lose their job or or if wages suck and benefits suck and you know, with this sort of state of precarity that the American worker exists in, makes them cautious and fearful, and they're not going to embrace a giant transformative plan if they're feeling cautious and fearful. So the whole point of the Green New Deal is we're going to bring everybody along. We're going to do climate policy, but we're going to do jobs. We're going to protect your jobs. We're going to do retraining. We're going to do, you know, we're going to have a just transition for hard hit communities. Like we're going to bring it all together. And it's going to be a national reformation of what the U.S. is, not just a climate thing. Like that was the whole point and strength and appeal of the Green New Deal. I agree that people haven't necessarily, like the candidates haven't necessarily taken that in as much as, as much as they should, but like Warren, for instance, has no climate plan. She has a, a, a climate plan about the military. She has a climate plan about jobs. She has a climate plan about uh, uh, procurement. She's got all these different plans that are through a climate lens, and I think that's the smart way to do it. I think in practice, It's never going to be this single thing. It's going to be a background condition that people accept is just kind of part of everything we do.
5: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines.
2: after after that big talk big ideas i need to i need to drag us back down to our our wheezy roots i'm going to talk about this this paper it's about algae It's incredible. There's an algae element, uh, no, I, but there's <laughs> um, some algae in there. So, so I I I read this on the plane uh, coming out here. Um, it's 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 really interesting. It's called carbon utilization, a vital and effective pathway for decarbonization. It's by Jeffrey Bobeck, Janet Peace, and Fatima Maria Ahmad. Um, and it's about something I had never really thought about. Uh, but it's what can we do to sort of capture. Uh, greenhouse gases and then do something with them instead Including of
4: using it in construction which i did not really yeah yeah this do. is a really
2: interesting and yeah new... this concrete one was like it, i i i i met a guy years ago he worked in the concrete aggregates business and he was really smug about it and about how there's no, like, the world's always going to need aggregates. And I, it was like this whole weird thing. One <laughs> word. I was, like, I don't know. One
3: word. Aggregates. aggregates. So in case you don't know,
2: <laughs> concrete, you make concrete by this, like, little stuff, pebbles. Um, <laughs> those are the aggregates. Um, Tell us more, Matt. I think
3: we're losing focus here, Matt. <laughs> let me let me. But you me can do it with back. carbon
2: dioxide instead. <laughs>
3: The, the, the point of all this is, right, we, we're making more carbon uh, than we need to. Uh, we need to cut the amount we emit, but we also eventually are going to have to bury a bunch. We basically have already emitted more than is safe, and we're not going to stop overnight, so we're going to have to bury a bunch. So we're going to have to capture carbon, which there's there's industrially speaking, there's two ways you can do it. You can grab it out of the waste gases that come out of a power plant where it's pretty concentrated, or you can just grab it out of the ambient air. It's called direct air capture now. They just build these big machines that sort of have chemical reactions that pull carbon dioxide out of the air. So the question is, burying CO2 doesn't make you any money, and until there's a very big (laughs) carbon price, it's not gonna be worth it for anybody to do it, but we need to bury gigatons of carbon by mid-century, so how do we get carbon capture going well also just logistically right In like the it would meantime, be weird
2: to have like huge
3: yes, like, it's carbon be,
2: caves or something it's gonna
3: be if you read reports like this they estimate that by 2030 the US needs to have a carbon capture and burial industry that handles four times the quantity of material that the that the oil and gas industry deals with today. We're talking about lots more. We're talking about burying a lot of carbon. So we need to get this going. We need to get carbon capture scaled up and and professionalized and bring it down in in price. But we don't have any incentive to bury it right now. So what can we do? Well, one thing we could do is use the carbon dioxide. And it turns out that carbon dioxide is a useful thing. It's It's a feedstock that goes into a lot of processes. So you can use it to in what's called uh, advanced oil recovery, which is not the most pleasant way to use it, but you can get uh, oil, more oil out of uh, exhausted fields. Or you can, through various chemical uh, transformations, you can make it into aggregates. You can, Yay! You, can <laughs> you can inject it directly into concrete in the, in the concrete making process. You can make it into plastics. You can make it into pharmaceuticals. Like it can become a chemical feedstock for a million different, uh, uh, um, you know, areas or, or products. The reason concrete gets so much attention is that concrete is the one, well, A, concrete traps the CO2 permanently, right? Whereas if you make it into fuels or something like that, and then you burn the fuel, the CO2 ends up in the air anyway, so you're just sort of like delaying it. But concrete traps the CO2 and keeps it permanently, and, Um, uh, Cement, which goes into making concrete, is the second most used substance on the planet after water. It's like concrete is responsible for 7% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So if you could, instead of digging up carbon out of the ground and using it as a feedstock, if you could pull it out of the air and use it as a feedstock, instead of having um, carbon-intensive carbon intensive products and processes. You would have carbon neutral products and processes because you would just be recycling CO2 from the air, pulling it out of the air, using it to make stuff, releasing it back into the air, so on. So this is a a way to A, decarbonize uh, uh, concrete and pharmaceuticals and plastics and uh, and a, a whole range of other products. But also it's a way to make carbon valuable, create a market for carbon and then you start And then carbon capture will have an incentive to sort of stand up and professionalize and scale up and get cheaper, and then you'll have an easier time burying it later. That's the sort of theory. So they had,
2: you know, there's policy proposals in here for this, which are, you know, very sort of big picture, you know, R&D stuff, blah, 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 blah. But But a really interesting thing I learned that I think, like, anybody in the audience can actually, like, take home and, like, email your city council person tomorrow about is that the building codes, right... Right now, they are incredibly prescriptive about what concrete needs to look like, right? And so they, one of their proposals here is to say we should have performance standards where you say okay it needs to have these kind of attributes right it has to be you know like strong enough so the buildings don't fall down Uh, rather than saying it has to be exactly like this uh, because to make things in a different way you need some flexibility for the things that you make to be a little bit it's a very
3: conservative uh industry people who build buildings that are supposed to last for a century are very gun shy about (laughs) messing with new materials so (laughs) That for is one some of the reason.
2: All the, for understandable reason. No, but I mean, like, this to me is, like, it's an example of, like, one of these things where it's like, okay, like, what does it mean to, like, take this challenge seriously, right? And, like, some of that, yes, is, like, pound the table on ideas that, I don't know, like, I would kind of like anyway. Like, let's have fancy trains that go everywhere. Uh, but some of it is to think about, like, okay, how risk-averse do we need to be about, like these building codes or do we need to
3: oh, like do something one other intriguing uh, part of, of this not necessarily this report, but just sort of carbon it's called carbon capture and utilization is the is the name for it is you can make and i don't think a lot of people uh, outside the nerd world know this but you can take co2 that you capture and mix it with hydrogen and energy basically electricity and you can make hydrocarbon fuels that will substitute for gasoline or diesel or even jet fuel. So this is a big deal because we have, you know, while we can make small vehicles now and even probably someday mid-sized vehicles and maybe even someday long-haul trucks electric, there are this whole class of transportation, shipping, planes, which we just don't know how to electrify. So we need hydrocarbon fuels to run them, but we don't want polluting hydrocarbon fuels. So this is a route to decarbonizing some of those sectors that are very difficult to decarbonize otherwise. And if you think even on a bigger scale, if we scale this up enough, you could replace the entire, you know, like eventually at the limit, you could replace the entire world's supply of liquid fuels with carbon neutral fuels. That's an enormous, that's huge amount of, 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 of global CO2 emissions. So it's, it's, it's an interesting idea to think about carbon not just as waste, but as uh, a useful uh, commodity and give people a reason to capture it and not waste it.
2: There was a thing about algae in there.
3: Yeah, and also you can use CO2 and it will stimulate the growth of algae, which you can then make fuels out you of. You can and make diesel. Very taken with make, algae. Making diesel out of the algae. I love it. We need an algae czar. We're going to get an algae czar for our next... They say
2: responsive federal algae policy is divided across three cabinet agencies. <laughs> and there needs to be an algae czar who will coordinate Somebody's this algae take this policy up. across the world. I'm really looking forward to it. There's a congressional algae caucus of some kind, I learned on Twitter today. Uh, so, God bless.
1: In U.S. working forests, or...
2: Um, So, okay, no, uh, I I think it it might be interesting, uh, since you all uh, here in the audience uh, bothered to to come and see us, to invite folks here to uh, come up. Uh, We've got one microphone here and one there, uh, if anyone would like to ask any questions. Uh, Two stipulations. One is that because we are recording this uh, to broadcast later, it's very important to speak into the microphone so you will be recorded properly. The other is please ask uh, real questions. Otherwise, um, I'm going to throw this at you (laughs) Uh, so be be good Um, yeah all right all right this question is for Dr. Vox uh, but it really applies to all three of you Um, I read your writing and I appreciate your analysis but I wonder how many other people are reading it and communicating and reaching out to you so how many of the candidates have reached out to you and how many philanthropists have to Have you analyzed their plans? And you would say that like, maybe researchers should be reached out to, but they don't have verified Twitter accounts. So I think there's a lot more power in getting your approval.
3: Uh, Well, that's very flattering. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I do not have a line of candidates forming outside my office asking for my advice, sadly, weirdly. Um, I mean, I know, I know climate people, I mean, I know the kind of climate people who get sucked into these campaigns and end up writing these plans, like I know them sort of f- f- through history, and so I'm, I'm in touch with them. They're not particularly asking me for advice. What they do is putting out a plan and then begging me to write nicely about it. That's, that's, that's generally what they do. But, uh, but uh, I think they, they um, maybe all of them except for Sanders, I think, care, care what I think, so maybe that's something. That's nice uh,
2: you know i mean it's, it's interesting you do get different different levels of engagement uh, with, with different candidates on the whole sort of range of topics, and um, you know some campaigns I personally talk to a lot about the stuff that they're doing, others you know don't don't necessarily care all that much um, you know I think one thing that's interesting in in sort of a crowded primary field is that, you know, politicians like it when you write about them favorably, and they don't like it when you write about them critically. Uh, But as a writer, well, A, like as a journalist, you know, you want to be a somewhat critical person. But also, like an article that says, well, so-and-so just released, like, a blueprint that sounds really nice, but also it would never pass the Senate. That's That's like a really boring story, right? Whereas a assessment with some bite to it could actually be like a like a good piece right um and and I think like the smarter campaigns recognize that being ignored is just like a death sentence and that it's useful to engage in a public debate, acknowledging that like not everyone will be convinced of every single thing that you say. But the instinct of staffers in particular is to be like incredibly defensive about everything. But that encourages a kind of like Blah And you've seen like 22, 27, 1004 candidates in the Democratic field, and like very few of them have made any kind of splash. And I think that's because very few of them have sort of put themselves out for real scrutiny in a way that like merits attention in, in, a, in a kind of interesting way. Cool. Hey, y'all.
1: So Jane and Dave kind of um, touched on this, but what scares me the most about climate change is uh, the shifting distribution of resources away from current structures of state power. Um, and both the, um, the resource wars that are likely to in- ensue over the next 75 years. Is there a question? Yes, getting to it. And the global refugee crisis that's gonna come from that. Seeing how we reacted to Syria and to the southern border right now, um, that seems like there's a large potential for fascism and genocide on a scale that we can't imagine. Um, and so, should we be uh, reframing the climate narrative from um, prevention to adaptation?
3: And if so, what does that look like? Uh, you know, it's it's if if people are groping for examples of climate refugees, we just turned away some people from the Bahamas yesterday. So there's, you don't have to go back very far. And if you want a, a preview of exactly what I was talking about before, which I think is going to be the conservative shift to a kind of lifeboat, climate lifeboat philosophy, uh, yes, that is also the thing that scares me most about climate change. And and, and furthermore, just to scare you further, and this is a a point I think David Wallace-Wells made really well in his recent book, and this is something that I've sort of absorbed more and more over time, is everything that climate change does makes climate change harder to solve subsequently. So every day we're not doing this, it's getting harder and harder to do it. And that's going to be more and more refugees, more and more cities that run out of water, more and more heat waves. The more that stuff, people respond to fear and anxiety, not with an outburst of altruism and future-focused uh, policymaking. They they draw in. That's what fear is and anxiety do and climate change is a is a dial that is just going to turn up fear and anxiety that is it's going to be its main that's going to be its main effect and so globally and in indi- every individual country it's going to make doing things harder so to me that just sort of adds to the kind of frantic urgency of all this because it's just getting like like the reactionaries you know, if, if 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 America's okay turning away people from the Bahamas who just lived through a hurricane, what about like, you know, a couple hundred thousand Bangladeshis, or you know, like you don't have to use much imagination to imagine America putting up walls and becoming sort of like a Trump Island. I don't know what I mean. If you're asking for a solution, I'm <laughs> uh, my question is: the the courts seem pretty popular. Uh, does anybody see any scenario under which the courts might lead the legislature and, and you know, help with climate? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Grimace
3: emoji all the way across. I mean, maybe the, the old courts <laughs> but, but you might notice they're being uh, vigorously stacked with, with right wingers as we speak. and right now, like just to just to take one very prominent example um, You know, this EPA, can EPA regulate carbon business? The EPA's uh, uh, ability to use the section of the Clean Air Act that it's using to regulate carbon never got settled in the court. Trump just took it back and stopped trying. So it's going to go back to court, and it's eventually going to go up to the Supreme Court. And now, look at the Supreme Court. Right, it's going to get like all of it's going to end up at the Supreme Court eventually, and no, they're not going to be helpful, no, at all. Like, the, uh, my worry is that is that the courts are going to go from being some of the strongest agents of climate action, which I think they were during sort of the Obama years and, and since, and and flip and, and go the other way. Maybe I'm being too too apocalyptic. Man. Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't want to like say I can read John
2: Roberts's mind on this, but I do think that people should be attuned. I mean, I think as Democrats have gotten more interested in the idea that there won't be deals with Republicans, they're going to do things through unilateral executive action. It's important to understand that what that means in practice, right? Executive branch unilateralism really means the policymaking power tosses to the judicial branch. Because everything I mean everything Trump does, it's the same thing. You go to court, you go to a sympathetic jurisdiction, you get an injunction placed on it, and then it bubbles up through the system. Right? So the viability of a lot of stuff Democrats will do is going to hinge on what happens at the Supreme court. Uh, justice Kennedy was had some moderate environmental sympathies. Um, and that's why the Massachusetts versus EPA decision came down the way it did. Um, it's, I think not really known how the current Supreme court lineup will rule on those things, but I wouldn't, um, I would prepare to be disappointed.
3: Yeah, and the, one th- and the one thing I would say is, as much of a sort of Obama fanboy as I ever was, one of the things I think a legitimate criticism of him is, and the left generally, is just his, his inattention to courts. The right has been much smarter and much more uh, f- forward-looking about the crucial role courts are gonna play, and now they're sort of stacking it and stacking it, and it's gonna take decades to, <laughs> to, to, re- to undo that balance that they're creating.
4: Do you think that climate activists should be uh, placing a larger emphasis on affecting
2: state and local change, or is it worth it to try and go for changing federal policy, even if it's really difficult?
4: I mean, why not both? But I think that Um, If there's anything about the last couple of years, it's that I hope that we've all discovered the magic, many wonders of federalism. Because I think that at the local level, and you're even seeing this with the actions being taken in Harlan County to stand up for coal miners, because I think that there's a sense, you know, climate change is going to have a lot of impacts, including on the people who relied most on the industries that contributed to it. And the people who are standing up for coal miners in Kentucky and West Virginia and elsewhere, that's local action. And the people who are leading that in Kentucky are trans people and anarchists who are going out, giving people target gift cards to help them make it through the week, who are helping people like stay through this protest against an industry that has essentially left these people to die. And so I think that those localized actions, one, I think that one of the biggest problems that I think that climate action can take is that it seems hypothetical it can seem like very above everyone, when it's no, it's about the real deal impacts. And I think that of what climate can do in everyday life. And I think that that's some of the biggest successes that we've seen in the 70s and 80s in terms of how cities have taken on pollution or how localities have taken on like chemical waste for example were because of individuals and groups standing up by saying like I live here in Love Canal I live here in these different areas and I say this is not what it's going to happen I'm from this neighborhood and you're seeing that with the climate justice work that's being done in Louisiana which is experiencing the rapid encroachment and destruction of wetlands and so I think that there is a way, I mean, obviously federal policy is deeply important, but I think that there's very much of a sense, and I think that, you know, in terms of things that the left may have gotten wrong during the Obama years, I think that when you, th- when you think of the federal government as a backstop, it makes it a lot easier to not notice your city council elections, your statewide elections, which is why the GOP controls so many, you know, state houses and governor's mansions across the country. I think that, the actions being taken even over the last couple of years to start to flip that I think are really important in that sense because I think climate change occurs on the smallest of levels. It's not just about like how much carbon we produce as opposed to how much ch- carbon China produces. It's about the actions that you can take at your local level as well.
3: Uh, yeah, I just add two, two quick things to that. One is uh, yes, I think the answer to your question is yes, uh, Climate action is happening at the state level, and if there is a road to federal climate policy, it's gonna be a critical mass of states. The same way um, national uh, fuel economy standards happen, like California chose its own standards and more and more states started joining California until finally the automakers were like, we can't make two sets of cars, let's just do national standards. I think that's the only road, really, practical road to federal policy. First, the First thing I'd say. Second thing I'd say is, even below the state level, there are units where units of governance where a relatively small number of people can have a big impact. And one I would call out is um, is, is the the utility boards that govern utilities. Each state has a, a board that governs its utilities, and those and those utility boards are are tiny and almost always neglected. And they have their hands on an enormous amount of carbon, like they have influence over enormous amount of carbon. So I'd love to see more surgical sort of attention to sort of where you can get big results with small numbers and just third by way of wrapping this up i recently did a post where i assembled a, a, as close as i could to a comprehensive list of the places that have taken bold climate policy action in the last two or three years cities and states and guess what they all had in common they had democratic legislatures and Democratic executives. The ones who did climate things are the ones who elected overwhelming numbers of Democrats who could over, who could ignore Republicans and pass stuff. That's true at the city level and it's true at the state level. So I don't want climate to be a partisan issue. I would love it if everybody got on board. But just as an empirical matter, if you're looking for the shortest road to climate action, it's just elect Democrats. Like Democrats are on board. If you elect them, they'll do this. Just elect them and they'll do it.
2: Great. Uh, I'd like to loop back to the Joe Manchin question because I think that's the thing that no candidate has figured out how to get around the structure of the Senate. So can I just pitch you my crazy 15-second plan for how to fix the Senate? Uh, Basically, you take the Budget Control Act of 2011 that created the super committee that gave us the awful sequester, but you put citizens on it instead? If you had normal citizens and gave every member of Congress a, their own super committee to take on these challenges, could we fix some of these things? Could
0: we work in parallel to fix Congress? I did. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The thing about these kind of procedural forms, like if you look at how the, uh, the filibuster for executive branch appointments got changed, it was that there was a concrete thing that was happening that sincerely outraged Senate Democrats, on a rank-and-file level, so that they felt they, they didn't want to change the institution. But Mitch McConnell saying that he wasn't going to use leverage to bargain for a different CFPB chair or different NLRB nominees, but he was just going to keep those vacant forever, that pissed off. The moderate Democrats, so they were like, we've got to change the rules. And the thing about you can call it Joe Manchin, or you can imagine even a bigger majority, so it's John Tester, it's Kristen Sinema, whatever. There's no s- trick that gets the people who hold the leverage points to give up their power, right? Now, if the issue is that John Tester actually wants incredibly ambitious climate legislation to pass, but he's afraid about his constituents in Montana, then like, yes, maybe you can come up with some kind of gimmick that gets around it. But if the issue is, is I think it often is in these cases that like there's a disagreement among the party as to like how far you should go on these things. They're not, you know, it's not really a process issue. It's about the substance fundamentally.
3: In, 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 but, but just to ratify the premise of your question, yes, the Senate is utterly broken, destitute, terrible, the world's worst deliberative body, and a scar, a scar on our nation. Uh, and I could go on, but I won't.
2: That said, if a relatively small number of people from Seattle moved to Anchorage...
3: <laughs> oh yeah, we got a whole plan, you guys. Uh, we-
0: Uh, Hi, so obviously mitigating climate, it's going to take a lot of legislative action, it's going to take a lot of money, which we've talked about tonight and people talk about a lot. It's also going to take like making a lot of stuff, and I think people
2: talk about that a little less, and that's where I get concerned, I mean, there's obviously efforts in concert to limit nuclear power and to ban fracking, which are both, particularly the, the latter, is like an important issue that I think would help a lot of local problems but also it would kind of harm the broader goal. And accepting that, you know, climate change, I think mitigating it is the issue of our time, the critical issue of our time. Like, don't we need to prioritize, or can we have it all?
3: Well, uh, if you read Bernie Sanders' plan... <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, right, exactly. All well, it takes is
3: $16 trillion. Yeah, just a $16 trillion. I mean, it, we, we, there are hard trade-offs everywhere, and there are trade-offs not just in terms of, like, the practical requirements of doing climate change, but there are hard trade-offs in in... You know, and I think climate activists don't really like to talk about this or or hear about it, but there are other important social and political goals, you know, also that have to be balanced just in terms of allocation of effort and political uh, uh, capital, but I don't think there are technical restraints. Let's just say that. I don't think we need natural gas to do it. We could do it without natural gas. Uh, Uh... Yes, certainly in the long term and in the short term. Like yeah, yeah. yeah well, I mean, it, it, lo- long term is fine. It's all about getting through the eye of the needle, right? It's all about using the fossil fuels we have left to build as much clean infrastructure as possible. Like that's the rational thing The the, the amount of carbon budget we have left before we blow through it ought to be devoted entirely to building new to building new infrastructure and new ways of doing things that's what that's what we ought to be doing and and we're running we're rapidly running out of time to do that uh but i think nuclear is somewhat separable from that we're going to need a bunch more electricity if we're going to move all our vehicles onto electricity which we're going to try to do we're going to move all our buildings onto electricity which we're trying to do we're going to have to have like two three four five x the amount of electricity supply we, we had before, and that's gonna take a, a crap load. So I think for that reason alone, we shouldn't be turning down uh, uh, carbon-free <laughs> sources of power in advance, but, but, but natural gas is a, 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 slightly different, a slightly different issue. I think phasing out natural gas is perfectly doable if we have a comprehensive and, and rational plan for doing it. I don't know I'm if that answers what, what
2: happens if we run out of male questioners?
4: <laughs> um.
2: Renewable
1: piece <laughs> <research>. of <laughs>
4: That did kind of motivate me to stand up. (laughs) If it had been a bunch of women, I probably would have stayed seated. Um, So you've kind of already touched on my question, um, but I've been standing here for a while, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Please. Do do you think that the best way to mobilize voters around caring about climate solutions and and voting in people who care about climate solutions is stoking fear about what will happen if we don't do those things, or making it kind of a hip and possibly profitable endeavor? What's best? I think the best way is to combine it with issues that, because when people talk about kitchen table issues, generally that seems to exclude a lot of issues that are deeply important to most people who have kitchen tables and many who don't. So I think that combining climate with talking about, when we talk about immigration or we're talking about some of the, like criminal justice reform or talking about the military, I think that's an effective way, because I think that there is, I mean, I understand the kind of sturm und drang, like, if we don't do this right now, everyone will die issue, but I think that we've seen that before. We saw that with the population bomb in the 70s. We've seen that time and time again. I think that that kind of, I don't, it might be effective, but I don't think it's good, and I still believe that things could be both good and effective. Maybe I I might be alone in that, but I do think that there's a way to talk about climate in context that could be helpful for voters Just to make a a sound and reasoned decision to know that, like, yes, this does have to do with me.
2: I I feel like this kind of dispute about, like, how kind of hopey-changey versus (laughs) gloomy doomy to be a little bit, like, overdone. And if I were to critique the the general realm of this messaging, it wouldn't be about, actually, like, the, the tone of it because I feel like... People have been quite, like we were talking about, right? Like, all the Democrats came out with, like, really, really ambitious climate plans. Like, there was an adequate level of inspiration so that people (laughs) who were open to this, like, put on the table big stuff. I think the problem is that there's a tendency to then focus a lot of intellectual energy on kind of hypothetical, like, 90th yard questions. Like, what are we going to do about airplanes? Right. And there's like an incredible amount of like discourse focused around airplanes. Uh, because it's and hamburgers. Bit... Yeah. What? And,
3: and hamb- hamburgers. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, the hamburgers is a little weird because that, that's like a cynical culture war thing. But like the airplanes is a legitimately difficult technical problem, right? But it would be more useful to talk about the large number of relatively easy technical problems that simply require like an act of Congress and then you could do it right? Like the problem of the planes is that there isn't like an obvious thing to do, but algae. Zeppelins. (laughs) Algae planes. But it's like, we we don't need to like wring our hands in like every op-ed about like this girl on her sailboat and, and a million other things. It's like, what we need to do is mobilize effort around doing the doable things and sort of hope for the best on other stuff. But what's like infuriating about today is not that we haven't solved the hardest aspects of the problem, it's that we haven't solved the easiest aspects of the problem, yeah. and like anything it's like you just you got to do like one damn thing after another
3: yeah uh, uh, three things on this, which is a uh, uh, which you which you which you may or may not I have three things on everything which you, which you may or may not know is a long and ongoing dispute in the climate communications world it's it's still ongoing today. this Jonathan Franzen essay in The New Yorker has got. Everybody in the climate communication world all uh, in a Twitter. So my three brief points would just be, one, the social science that people deploy to to argue for their preferred communication strategy, in my opinion, tends to be extremely sketchy, extremely undercooked, and people tend to wildly (laughs) (laughs) over-learn lessons from it mainly confirming their own priors. So I think, like, I think, number one, no one knows. No one really knows what works on a mass scale to move masses of people. No one knows. Two, um, consequently, everyone should just communicate the way they friggin' want to and are good at and quit lecturing other people about how to communicate. Like, if you think Hopey-changey is the way to go. Go out with your hopey-changey message. Some people are moved by hope. Some are moved by fear. Some are articulate in their fear. Some are articulate in their hope. Some, you know, like, the, let a thousand flowers bloom. This, this sort of tone policing that has taken over the climate world is just odious to me. Um, uh, third. <laughs> Wait, what was third? I think I forgot my third thing. I'm blowing my whole shtick. I only have terrible. two things on that. <laughs>
2: All right, all right. We're gonna do. We're gonna do one more. One more.
3: Yeah. So, um, so
2: this should be good. Make it good. <laughs> uh, my understanding is that uh, one of the things that distinguished Bernie Sanders's plan was that it it called out military spending and wanted to cut that. And so I just was wondering. It's generated a bit of discussion around um, the role of military in climate foreign policy energy independence. Uh, do you view this as something, is this a, an important part of the conversation or is it kind of boondoggly?
3: I think it's a little peripheral right now. Like it's gonna, it's obviously a real issue and it's gonna come up and, and, and Sanders has a big thing and Warren also has a big thing uh, about the military. because so the military is A, a giant energy user, right? B, has billions of dollars deployed defending energy trade routes and energy sources and, and C is just an enormous a uh, uh, C is in the uh direct control mostly of the of the executive so there's a lot that can be done without uh without congress and and C is just enormously influential socially and 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 culturally a lot of uh social change has has taken root in the military weirdly enough so i think it's obviously a huge thing to the extent Sanders whole thing is if we cut down on oil use radically, we'll be able to withdraw military from all these places and shrink the military. I think is like there are several steps (laughs) missing in that that chain of logic, including like literally every vested interest in the country. Well, I mean, also, you the, doing the, that. the
2: United States became a net exporter of petroleum products last year, yeah. and it did not lead to the withdrawal of the American yeah, exactly. global military footprint.
3: Anyway, that's a very unsatisfying answer. <laughs> and I, with
2: that, I think, I think we're, we're, we're about out of time here. Uh, but, but thanks, guys. Can thanks. Can we, to, we let's
3: have uh, one more question from, please, a female? Can we just right, have one yeah, more? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah.
5: Thank you, I was hoping if I stood there long enough, I wouldn't be turned away. Um, I'm a middle school teacher and tomorrow is- That's awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Tomorrow is the anniversary of 9-11 and I was wondering how would you teach about the anniversary of 9-11 to a generation of children that were not even born when it happened and maybe through a climate
4: justice lens? I was a freshman in high school, on 9-11. Uh, I saw the second plane go in on TV. Um, and my parents told me later that they had started about it on TV, and their first thought was, we should go get Jane because they're going to come to Cincinnati. And it was one of those things that afterwards seemed illogical because I'm like, why would anyone attack Cincinnati? <laughs> but like, I, I think for anyone who was around at that time, like, every fear that you had just was like, Sure. Probably, like I don't know if anyone remembers, but like there was a whole talk of like, yeah, the terrorists are going to try to attack Los Angeles, and I think the best way to talk about it with middle schoolers who didn't experience it, especially thinking through climate justice, is to think about how much of an impact it's had on the day-to-day lives we have today. And I was just thinking about the fact that we are now at a generation in which there are fathers and mothers who served in Afghanistan, and their children are now serving in Afghanistan. And that's not likely to change anytime soon. And I think that the lives of military families have been both purposefully and accidentally excised from the lives that most of us live. Military families, a lot of them, you know, you live on a military base, and I think people deify the military while pushing them away. So and I, I know that that sounds tangential to climate justice, but we were just talking about how the military plays into how we think about you know, social issues. And so I think that talking about 9-11, it needs to be something where it's not just like, it was a horrible thing that happened to so many people. And it was an individualized experience while happening on a mass level. And I think that when we're talking about climate, it's a horrible thing that is happening as we are talking. It's a horrible thing that is ongoing. And it's not as obvious as planes going into the World Trade Center or the Pentagon, but its impacts can be just as widely felt. You know, There are kids who are, who, as you said, weren't born for it, who are now electing to serve in wars that began allegedly because of it. And so I think that when you can talk about the ripple impact of whether a single event or an ongoing crisis and how it can start to have to have impacts on you and your life and the lives of people you care about that you didn't begin to expect. I didn't think in September, October 2001, when I was playing field hockey in high school, I didn't think that we would still be in very much the same conflict nearly 20 years later. And so I think that, you know, and when it comes to climate change, I remember being a kid and learning about global warming, and it seemed like something that, like, yeah, that seems like a thing that seems bad, but that just, the knock-on effects and the ripple effects, I think that that's a way to think about this, because I think that there's something about 9-11, I mean, I think about it in the kind of ways that, like, I learned as a kid about Pearl Harbor, where you think about, like, oh, this terrible event, but then, like, the course of history seems so obvious when you're looking back on it, like... Pearl Harbor, Pacific War, European War. We won. Hooray! But that's not how history works. The events of history don't seem so obvious when they're taking place at the time. So I think thinking about those ripple impacts, thinking about how climate change, it's an ongoing crisis where the effects, we don't know what they're all going to be. We don't know who the next group of climate refugees will be. We don't know about the impacts it's having on kids who are growing up in areas that, where the air is getting more dangerous or where wetlands are dis, like, decreasing. We don't know what those impacts are going to look like. History happens while you're sitting in class watching TV sometimes. And I think that's the way that I would explain it to kids.
3: Uh, and uh, adding to all that, which, which is great. Um, Thanks, Dave. Yeah, that also, okay. plus, I... I don't know how popular a view this is, but I sort of view 9-11 as a dual, a dual tragedy. The tragedy of the, the pain and loss of life, and then the subsequent tragedy of our wild um, anger and fear-driven reaction, which spiraled into negative effects that dwarf the effects of the attack. That we took a tragedy and reacted in fear and anger and punitive, that punitive feeling of, of, of that lizard brain anger, and subsequently magnified the tragedy into a now two-decade-long tragedy that is, on, that is ongoing. So my, the way I would connect that to climate is, it's going to be very easy when the hurricanes start hitting. And 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 the refugees start coming and, and the people start running out of water and dying from heat waves, it's gonna be real easy to respond in fear and anger too. But by doing so, we will do the same thing, we will magnify the tragedy beyond what it has to be. So to me, I'd like that to be a lesson of how to the importance of 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 reacting to trauma with some uh, calm and clarity and, and distance and compassion.
0: Thank you very much.
3: We'll
1: All right, close it not out. miss
5: it short. Um, We've talked a lot about how apocalyptic and scary things can be. And um, one of the other questioners talked about making it feel personal. So I was just going to ask each of you to give one example of like the small, actionable, personal thing that you would do first or three things if you want.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think for me, it's and I know it sounds a little bit silly, but I think that just starting to take stock of stuff. Um, there's been a lot of really interesting writing on like, the accumulation of stuff and just kind of this idea of the fact that we don't really know what to do with stuff. Um, I'll give you an example. So Patagonia has this pro- program where if something that you have of theirs like, tears or it's too old, you can just send it back. And Patagonia, when they started this program, were like, great, we can reuse it. Turns out People are dirty monsters. So a lot of the stuff they can't reuse. And they're like, well, we can't just incinerate it because that all that carbon, like that's not better. So they have warehouses that's just stuff people sent back, whether it's stuff that didn't fit or it's stuff that people had for 20 years and they never used. And I think about that a lot because there are a lot of times where I'm just like, what am I, what am I going to do with the stuff I already have and at some point, someone else, after I, di- I after I die, will have to deal with that stuff. And just thinking about what stuff is actually stuff you need. And I know it sounds so small, because there's a way we talk about like climate and the environment with little kids, where you're just like, reduce, reuse, recycle. But that still matters. It still matters to think about the stuff you have and the stuff you don't need, and to think about it in a very personal way. And I think that's how I do it. I also, I don't drive, but that's also because I'm kind of terrified of driving and cars are evil monsters of death. But- so something,
2: something you know, I found interesting is in this sort of takes plane, right? It's, it's good to... Um, Uh, We kind of distinguish between like policy collective solutions and things we will do individually. Uh, But something I found is interesting and actually worthwhile about trying to do things individually is you learn more about what the policy and collective problems are. So, like, my wife and I decided we wanted to get, uh, replace our windows, get more energy efficient windows. And we wound up having some trouble with historic preservation rules. We got a solution that was like, Pretty good, but not as good as what we wanted. Uh, But it was good. I mean, we improved the situation in our house. But I also, like, learned a new policy grievance that I'm (laughs) able to take to the relevant elected officials. And because it's a much more actually localized thing, right? Like, the the D.C. Council is, like, much more responsive to what, like, liberal people think (laughs) than the U.S. Senate is. Um, And so there's some... So you know, so you do something personal. You learn about something that's policy, but then you can take personal action about the policy, and you may have some actual policy efficacy there because it's like close to me and and relevant. And so now I'm on to the next thing, which is like solar panels on the roof, which is its whole other fucking nightmare, honestly, <laughs> of, of preservation and stuff. Uh, but that's why I, it's it's made me feel better about the idea of urging people to sort of take individual action, because it's actually a very instructive way to learn about the systemic barriers to like actually try and see what you can do. Um, Because you can do a lot, and then it's not just that what you can do alone isn't enough, but like things will stand in your way, right? And that's a good way to indicate like, what do I need to talk about? Who do I need to talk to?
3: Yeah. Uh, A more direct answer to your question: the biggest individual things you can do are fly less, drive less, live in a smaller house. But, 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 but the the thing I've always found the thing that's always been a problem with climate is that the what we, the choices we present to people when, when we tell them about this horrible thing that's happening are either. Um, you know, call your congressperson, which is just distant and sort of so oblique and so unsatisfying. It seems so far away, or reduce, reuse, recycle, which seems just absurdly picayune next to the problem. So we're so what's but 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 what I always try to remind people is there's a middle space that we've largely forgotten in America or let kind of uh, let we we've neglected, which is just sort of the civic. Space beyond your individual life, but short of the federal government. So your neighborhood, or your library, or your school board, or your town council. Like there's a, all there's all sorts of layers of civic involvement that are much more sort of tangible and much more um, you know you can see results. And, but you also feel like you're doing something collective, and you also feel like you're you know you need to do something collective because the the number one thing we all need once we really wrap our heads around climate change is, 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 some, to, is some fraternity, right? Is some togetherness because it's terrifying and isolating. So I really think we need to be doing things together, but there are tons of things we can do together that are short of marching in Washington, D.C. You know, there's all these uh, uh, local institutions and relationships and networks, social networks that you have access to and are involved in, all of which can do things that are, that are positive, on climate change. So I would just like to see people reactivate this kind of civic space, the sense that like, we're all doing something together, not necessarily by government, but just by organizing one another, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. So I would say, like, just start local. I think that's the most sort of satisfying way to get actual results and feel like you're actually doing something.
2: All right. So thanks so much to everybody who came out here. Thanks especially people asked questions. Thanks to Dave for uh, for joining us for this special episode, and thanks so much to the Town Hall in Seattle for putting this together. It was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Good night.